Hello, you're listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming back Christy to the podcast. Welcome back, Christy. Thank you, Hazel. So good to be back. <laughs> we both had far too much to say last time. And as pretty much as soon as we hung up, I think we made the decision <laughs> to record a part two. And I'm so excited about it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So if you haven't caught the first episode, definitely go back and listen to that first. That was pretty much all about, you know, SeaWorld and your journey as a marine mammal trainer. But since then, you've moved on from working with the killer whales to working with a lot of different species in your new role at the San Diego Safari Park. So uh, I'm so excited to hear all about it. Well, thank you. It's actually three years have gone by really quick. Uh, mm. I will tell you though that there isn't a day that goes by that I don't miss the killer whales and the other animals that I worked with at SeaWorld. My heart is very much still there and in support mm -hmm. of SeaWorld and what they do every single day. Uh, but you know, towards, you know, I, I spent 31 years at SeaWorld. That's a long time. I would say that is a full career. And I really did not have any intentions of leaving. Throughout my career, I always went back towards education. If I got to a point in, in my job where, you know, when little things are really frustrating you, mm -hmm. those are the times where I said, you know what, some of these things are obviously too important to me. So let me focus my attention on something else. So mm. I always went back to education because, you know, my dad always told me anybody can take anything from you, but they can't take your knowledge or your education. Ooh, and that. so, yes. And so I, I, I'm a lifelong lear learner. I love, I love to go into school. <laughs> um, so I ended up going back for my bachelor's degree while I was in animal care at SeaWorld. And I really focused on psychology and animal behavior. And then later on in my career, I, I got to that point again, like, okay, what am I doing? Uh, let me just reassess, went back to school. Um, my, my boss at the time had told me about a really great master's program. And he said, this program will change your life. And he was right, because I not mm -hmm. only earned my master's degree in human behavior, but I met my husband there. Oh, wow. Um, so, <laughs> so that was fantastic. And I had always thought about pursuing a doctorate degree, but I really, I was hard pressed to find a program that I thought really encapsulated what it was I wanted to dedicate so much time and energy to until I found uh, the Doctorate of Management and Organizational Leadership. The program uh, was really about not just academia, but how are you going to take what you learn and put it into practice? Mm. Um, so, so that was really interesting. I, I completed my degree while, I, while I was at SeaWorld. Uh, one of the things that drew me to the organization was, uh, their support of educational assistance. I would not have been able to do it without them. Mm -hmm. And so, but then, you know, after you spend so much time and, and work on these degrees, I really was 
was eager to get into a position where I could really influence change at a higher level. And I'm not saying you can't influence change at all levels within an organization, but I really wanted to look at the, the structure and the decision-making, the care of the people that really was a passion of mine. And so I had applied for a few um, upper level positions at SeaWorld and unfortunately I wasn't selected for those, but going through that process, certainly, you know, everybody is, is, is afraid to fail. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, when you reflect back on your life, you realize that those moments where you fail is where you learn the most. You learn the most about yourself mm -hmm. because people will give you feedback as to what are the skills or abilities that you need to obtain to get to that position. But also going through a process, meeting different people, being able to talk about your career, talk about your philosophies or, or what you see for the, the position. And so one of the positions... I was able to, I was invited to be a part of the Abu Dhabi design team. And so Ooh. that was probably <laughs> one of the high, highlights of my career. Take away the animal side, because there's tons and tons of highlights uh, with the animals. But this really was a great opportunity to just, you know, you talk about blue sky and brainstorming. This was like the ultimate, ultimate of creating a marine park that is is absolutely going to be phenomenal it's going to be like something you've never seen before oh I cannot so that, wait to yeah. go like uh, that for, I don't know if you can talk <laughs> a bit more about your role in designing it because I would love to hear that but it sounds like you know the did you ever play the computer game Zoo Tycoon you know I didn't but I heard about it and I, I I heard a lot of people would would do it you know they'd be able to put their own theme park together yeah is that um, basically but, what you were doing because that sounds awesome uh, Sort of. I mean, you're you're in a room with so many other zoological experts mm. and, you know, some of the best engineers in, in the world uh, coming together. And I know I can probably speak for you. I've never been in a situation where somebody said, OK, if you like put money aside, what do what do the animals need? And let's really think about you know, a lot of times we'll look at standards or accreditation standards mm -hmm. or guidelines. And they really said, you know what? Great. Those are standards and guidelines. We're, we're going to go above and beyond. Amazing. And so it, I mean, it really just was incredible. And like I said, a highlight. So um, it was many meetings of getting together and designing. I was a part of um, two of the major areas. One is the dolphin show and the dolphin habitat. And then the other is the sea lion show and the sea lion habitat. Mm. So, I mean, those designs, it's, I tell, you know, I was telling people, you really need to think about going to SeaWorld Abu Dhabi. It's going to be incredible. It is literally a trainer's dream come true. You oh, have I have told my husband. I've yes. told him I was like block <laughs> off block off a couple of weeks next year because we are going to Abu Dhabi. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean I can't wait to see it. So so that was was really great. Um, but again, I really got to the point in my career where I really wanted to put into practice the degree I just had worked so hard for. Mm -hmm. And so ironically, I did two uh, meet and greets with the killer wells and a supervisor and a manager from the safari park. And after I did those meet and greets, uh, one of them, I, I, gosh, I think I spent like a couple hours with him. Uh, later on, somebody that I knew that knew them 
said, hey, you know, they, they said that they have a manager position opening up and that you should really think about applying for it. And I thought, wow, you know, I've grown up in San Diego. Of course, I went to the safari park as a child, to the San Diego Zoo as a child. But I really, I really hadn't thought about pursuing a career with them. And so it had been a while. So I, I went in and I, I looked at, you know, what their organization stood for, what, what was their mission, what was their purpose. At the same time, ironically, I won tickets to the zoo from SeaWorld uh, for a safety <laughs> contest. And so uh, I went to the zoo and again, I hadn't been there in many years and my husband and I were walking through and I just felt like my heart was there. The way that they were educating the guests about the animals, the habitats were really state of the art. It was just a very different feeling than the traditional zoo setting. And so I thought, hmm, I'm gonna check this out. So I applied went in for my interview. My interview was four hours long. Um, it was, wow. it was like the formal interview, but then we walked the park and we really talked about leadership and about our own philosophies of the care of animals and people. And I just really clicked, uh, with these two curators. And so I was actually in LA, we were doing a Abu Dhabi prep for the show the dolphin show mm -hmm. and I was driving home and I got a call and I got the offer and so um, it was very very difficult uh, mm -hmm. to leave zero but but for for me I was I was ready to take that next step and yeah. so yeah I think as well you know was there partly you'd everything that you'd set out to achieve and do within the SeaWorld company or with marine mammals, did you feel like you had achieved all of that and were kind of ready for an, a new change? You know, I've always seen myself as, I think when you get so much experience, you kind of get to the point where like, oh yeah, I, I know everything. I never felt mm -hmm. that way. I always felt, I always yearned to learn more, mm -hmm. whether it was from the animals, whether it was you know, something that was going on in wild populations that we're able to assist with, um, you know, newer team members coming in and them having different perceptions about behavior and about animals. Uh, you know, I, I never got to the point where I, I thought, oh, okay, I've learned it all, time, time to move on. I think my ability to influence change, I think I peaked and I had done mm. as much as I could do um, you know, I was on the forefront of fighting against Blackfish and speaking out for the organization. And, and that really, that really took a toll on me. It's exhausting. Uh, pers personally, it, it is super exhausting because, you know, it's one thing when complete strangers question you about the care of your animals that you, you know, you have dedicated your life, you have missed birthdays and holidays and, you know, you, you give up a lot. To work with the mm -hmm. animals and I'm not saying that to to complain absolutely not that was a choice that I made and my family a hundred percent supported that mm -hmm. but you do sacrifice a lot and you do you know you go home and even when you're at home you're thinking about okay how could I have done that better what can yeah. I do next and you know you're just constantly driving to make sure that you're doing everything that you can do for the animals in your care and when strangers question you it's one thing but when your family hmm. said, is that true? Is that true? What they said in Blackfish? And mm -hmm. I thought, my goodness, like that, that really hit me in the face as how effective 
they were at putting misinformation and visuals together to create a narrative to help support, you know, the animal rights movement. So yeah, I mean, they're very big, good at doing yeah. it. I mean, they're, they're, they're experts. <laughs> so, you know, and that, that didn't steer me away. Don't get me wrong. Like I, to this day, like people will say like, aren't killer whales supposed to swim hundreds of miles a day, you know, and I'm still trying to help educate not just about killer whales, but then, you know, it transitions into elephants and gorillas. And I mean, you, you know, you name it and you know, people have questions and that's great. Like have all the questions you want. Let's have a thoughtful conversation about what your actual concerns are. Mm -hmm. And I'm not there to tell you you're right or wrong. I'm just there to share what I so passionately believe in. And you know what? You can decide on whether or not you support or you don't support and and that's okay. Yeah, I think it's the only way that you can be. You know, I think when you start to try and force your opinion down people's throats, it's when people, you know, stop listening. So sometimes the best thing you can do is just say, look, we're being very open. Here's the truth and take it or leave it kind of thing. Um that's right. But what was your last day like? Because I've spoken to so many killer rail trainers specifically who have made the decision to leave myself being one of them. And you said it right at the beginning of this episode that there's not a day that goes by that you don't miss the whales. They take a part of you and never mm -hmm. really let it go. What was your last day like? And how did you feel stepping away from the whales? You know, I had an amazing last day. I had a very supportive team. They, they knew why I was leaving. And um, I, you know, I heard a previous uh, podcast of yours where other people did not have such a great departure. Mm. Uh, and that is, that is so, so unfortunate. But, mm -hmm. you know, we had a very good culture in San Diego. And again, I had full support. Everybody understood, you know, why I was making the decision. So I had a, I, I had a great last day, you know, full of just spending time with the whales and, you know, saying my goodbyes if, if you want to. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, ironically enough, I had started, um, so I'd worked my final week at SeaWorld and I had like my final show and my entire family came and it was amazing. Um, but it was towards the end of summer and you know how tough summer is, you know, mm -hmm. you're working early in the morning to late at night. And because I was a supervisor also, I, you know, there always had to be a supervisor that was in. And so I started my new position at the safari park and I worked all week long at the safari park. And then I went back to SeaWorld to cover the weekends uh, because oh one goodness. of my, co yeah, one of my co-supervisors had a, had a trip planned. And I've said, you know what, I'll, I'll come back and work that weekend for you. I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want you to have to change your personal um, plans. So I did that. So that final weekend just was really just relaxed and I got to be, you know, in and around the whales and with the team. And so, um, I mean, it, it always it comes down to the animals, doesn't it? Like when, when you're in your last couple of weeks before you leave, everything else kind of fades into the background, like the early mornings, the late nights, lack of sleep, oh, yeah. you know, there's always yeah. drama <laughs> between staff. Like there's always going to be that. But what I found in like my last four weeks before I left is that everything just faded out and it was just the whales. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It was just spending that, you know, very precious and valuable time with them mm -hmm. and not 
not thinking about what I was leaving, but thinking about how I could take what the whales taught me and how I could apply that to my new position. Oh, and so I love I, that. Yeah, I actually have, we had uh, poster boards of each of the whales so that when a newer member joined, they could kind of see in a nutshell the poster of the animal and, you know, what are the things that the animals really excelled at? What are the things that the animals, you know, from our perspective found very reinforcing? So it's just mm-hmm. a kind of a quick shot. If you're going to start working a new whale, you could kind of look at that poster. And so mm-hmm. um, I was able to take my, you know, I told you the last podcast, Kasaka was my favorite. So yeah. I was able to take her poster, her poster is oh. up in my office at the safari park. Oh, I love that. A, yeah, she's just such a reminder of the importance of, you know, the importance of structure, but also the importance of really, really trying to understand your animal. Mm-hmm. not from a it, it's important for you to understand as a species and natural history perspective but it's really important to learn about the individual and so you can translate that into a wildlife care specialist you know what are the things that that person likes what do they find rewarding what motivates them mm-hmm. um so she's you know she's a constant uh, reminder and and on <laughs> my wall and in my office today so looking over your shoulder making sure you're uh taking her lessons on leadership. <laughs> that, that's right. Yes. So when you did um, start at the safari park, did you feel a little bit nervous stepping into the new role or did you thrive on the challenge? You know, what, what were you now, what did your day-to-day now look like? Wow. You know, it had been 31 years since I had started a new job. So um, it was, it was both filled with a lot of unknown, like what does my day-to-day look like? I remember before I started, um, an email went out announcing my promotion and there were certain areas that I was going to be managing. And I reached out to a former uh, SeaWorld keeper and I, I'm like, what do all these acronyms mean? I don't, I don't even know what areas I'm managing. And he was so great. And of course he sent me back all of the, you know, what each of those acronyms meant. Um, but it was full of excitement. Uh, but I'll, you know, absolutely, I was nervous. I think anybody stepping into a role um, as a manager at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park, you know, that's a that's a big step uh, in a big role to to go into. But uh, the day to day was really just filled with trying to learn. I, I think that's been my my one thing that's been so different for me is that when I worked at SeaWorld, no matter what species I worked with, I always felt 100% confident on the natural history of the animal mm. um, to be able to share, you know, facts about uh, the species, the plight of that animal in the wild. Very different going to the safari park where you have over 300 species and now, although I wasn't managing all 300 species, just a huge change of working with one species and now managing, you know, hundreds was completely different for somebody to come up to me and say, oh, you know, what is the lifespan of a platypus? Very hard <laughs> for me to not have the answer. Yeah. Uh, but then I also found the excitement in that of, wow, I get to be a learner again. And, mm-hmm. you know, there isn't a day that doesn't go by that I'm not learning at the safari park. Three years in, there's so, so much to learn. But what's even uh, 
more exciting is there's just so many people there to to help in that learning process yeah so yep went from water to to dirt so <laughs> big change in the big change in the environment and then a really large team we have 200 wildlife care specialists in uh, wildlife care so very large team a lot of dedication and passion and incredible conservation work so I just really felt like I was in the right place. I had the ability to use my education and, you know, influence at, at a much higher level. And I was in that role for 10 months and I've never had this happen to me in my career. My two bosses encouraged me to apply for uh, the director role. Mm -hmm. And that really was not in my that wasn't in my immediate future. I felt like I was finally kind of getting my feet underneath me as manager. And I thought about it and thought about it. And they talked to me and the previous director had talked to me and said, you know, I think that this is the right role for you. And so um, I applied and went through seven interviews and was selected as director. So it's Amazing. just been, yeah, it's just been incredible. And like I said, only only three years, so much more to do, so much more to learn, but it really has has been fantastic. Yeah, I can only imagine. And it must have been really such a positive thing for you for making such a huge change. And then only 10 months later to have that kind of faith from your team, from your bosses saying, hey, you know what you're doing well, let's think about moving on up again. Absolutely. Like I said, I, I'd never had, you know, the two people, the two very people who hired me, encouraging me to, to go for it for that next level. So yeah, amazing. Yeah, it really, it really was completely different than what I'd experienced in my past. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, you spoke a little bit about going from water to dirt. I'm sure there's, <laughs> you know, a lot of very practical changes that you have to make in you know the daily daily routine etc but what what was it like trying to learn to work with terrestrial mammals as opposed to marine mammals because you know you spoke about having to learn the natural history of so many different animals but also I assume you know individual differences within species and then within members of that species as well well you know it this position or my previous position as manager now it's even completely changes as in my new role yeah it really wasn't about you know in my interview i had said listen like i am not an expert in in these species and they said well that position we we have people in those roles mm. to be the experts um so it really was a, a complete shift in every day you're working in and around animals to you know my my role was really support for the team yeah. and making sure that you know we had safe areas to work with that our SOPs were in place um, so it was really more of a a outer look in and what can I do to help support this team do the incredible work that they do every day mm -hmm. and so the the learning about the animals that that was a benefit because as something would come up like we had a, a pretty incredible eye surgery on one of our young gorillas. And one of the things that the, the eye surgeon said to us is, We're, she's gonna need eye drops, two different eye drops. 
And the team said, oh, there's no way we can do that. I'm like, absolutely, you can do it, you know? And <laughs> so I would talk about, you know, my role and how, how I would train eye drops in a killer whale. So it just was a little bit different for them, especially me coming from a behavior background to mm. really say, no, you can do this. And, you know, majority of the team said, no, the topography of the face and how, how they hold and she's young. So she really hasn't been any formal training. And uh, one of the wildlife care specialists, I said, you know, I, I think you can do this. And she goes, you know what, I'm going to take that on. And they ended up doing it and they were able to um, train her. They modified some of their techniques to, to work with her because she was young and uh, she got her eye drops and her eyes completely healed now. So, you know, it's, it's more so as a, more so like a consulting role, I would say, than mm. being in the day to day, which I do really miss that. Um, but like I said, just so many opportunities to have a, a bigger impact. Um, on yeah. a larger team than say you just one individual working with one team and one species of animal. Mm. Have you ever had any pushback or any, you know, little comments made about you coming from the marine mammal world and being very training oriented? Because I'm not sure about the zoo culture in America, but I know over here in Europe, sometimes they can kind of look at marine mammal trainers or they have the impression that we're all about you know maybe the show and the training and less so about like the nitty-gritty of the work have you found that at all or is everyone <laughs> being oh why are you laughing <laughs> yeah. well because it's interesting that you share that but that's how it is in Europe it's the same way in the U.S. okay I think it's I think it's just more about how do we you know and maybe this is something you and I can talk about how do we pull these two groups together? And I know that um, IMATA has hosted conferences where AZA is involved and it's been this, you know, this group um, opportunity for people to learn, but there's just, there's so much for you to go to with AZA. And then mm. with IMATA, if you're strictly focused on marine mammals, then obviously I don't know how many AZA presentations you're going to look into, but I, it's very interesting. And whether it's between marine mammals and terrestrial animals, or if you just look within the marine mammal industry, you know, sea lion people, killer whale people, dolphin people, isn't there a little bit of that within the, the marine mammal industry? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's, I think that everybody sort of sets themselves apart. Mm -hmm. And I think the day when we all realize that we are all working towards the same goal, and that's mm -hmm. to provide top care and welfare for our animals it's how can we impact conservation how can we potentially save the species that we work with every day I think when we finally like settle down and stop looking at oh what are the differences and you don't know this because you're from a marine mammal background it's like hey everyone they're all animals and yes they come from different parts of the world and they have differences and needs but again the similarity is is that we're all working with the animals. It's all about observation. It's all about looking at natural history and what an animal needs, what behaviors do we want to elicit from them in natural habitats. I think once we finally get to that point, I think we're gonna be such a stronger group of animal people when we've just put aside whether you're working in water or working on the land. 
Oh yeah. So I don't, I don't know the answer to that other than creating that con that conversation of why do you think it's different? Because I will tell you, I see so many similarities between killer whales and elephants, mm. the social structure, um, the matriarchal behavior. There's so many similarities, just one's in the water, one's on land. There's <laughs> some differences, but I see more similarities than I see differences. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it, it exists in the, the U.S. as well. But, um, you know, I find when people, when people say that, there's no trust there. And so you really need to focus on the trust and trying to understand one another and understand, you know, what perspective and experience can I bring to the situation? And then also, what can I acknowledge from the other person's experience and perspective? I think if we bring those two worlds together, we're, we're going to have just the absolute phenomenal care and welfare for animals. I think also there can be, you know, a bit of a skewed perception, not only, you know, we were talking about marine mammal trainers versus zookeepers and their own mentalities, but I think the general public can also have a very differing view between marine park versus zoo and how they view both, you know, especially with marine parks getting a lot of negativity in the media. Why do you think that is? You know, that, that is a really great question and, and not one that I really want people to go like, oh, let's, let's take misinformation about, you know, traditional zoo setting and let's, let's go down the path that we did with free mammals. I just, mm-hmm. I, I really think that Blackfish was the catalyst to all of the, you know, questioning and negativity. Not that, that there isn't questioning about all animals in human care. Mm. Um, but it's, it's really interesting. I also think that there's a huge component to the profit versus nonprofit, uh, situation and organizations. Absolutely. And, you know, I've worked in both settings and I will tell you that, you know, that the care of the animals is just as high in both situations. Mm. I think that, you know, now working for the safari park and seeing all the incredible conservation work that is being done. Um, I think that's an area where maybe marine mammal facilities can really look at more and really get connected with wild populations and with scientists and really trying to understand more how they can make a bigger impact uh, with wild populations. It's one thing to educate about animals so that people Mm -hmm. preserve and protect animals in the wild. It's another thing to be actively involved in conserving um, out in natural habitats so oh of course yeah and I think as well part of it might be you know this is just my own personal opinion but I feel like zoological facilities like traditional zoos have been doing that I would say for a lot longer at the level they have been and I feel like marine parks were getting there but we just started I think a little bit later and we just need a little bit of time to catch up yeah, and you know, I, I will tell you too that I think that there was a lack of visibility of the work that was being done. Um, also, SeaWorld sea Rescue has been around for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until recently where it was really shared widely with the public the work that they were doing. Mm-hmm. I think some people think, oh, they're going out and rescuing, you know, pinnipeds and cetaceans. No, no, no. They've been doing that for a long, long time. It's just mm-hmm. that it really wasn't shared, 
you know, outwardly with the public like it is today. Mm-hmm. So it, there, there has been work that's been done. I just think the level of work is, is different uh, with the organization that I'm with now. Mm-hmm. And I would 100% wholeheartedly agree with you. And, you know, the San Diego Safari Park is world renowned uh, for a very good reason. And I was lucky enough to visit. Oh, God, don't even ask me how many years ago it was. I'm getting old now. <laughs> don't ask me that. Uh, this before I was a trainer. But it really is, you know, ranked. Are you guys still ranked number one? In- you know, I... I have no idea. I don't, I don't follow those things too closely. I know from time to time we're ranked one. I will tell you, I've, I've been to many, many zoos and it's definitely in my top five. Mm, yeah. Um, let's, let's say top five. Let's, let's say you're yeah. de- definitely somewhere <laughs> there. Um, but yeah, for a reason, you know, you guys do such incredible work um, out there in the wild with your conservation project. So um, I would love if you could share some of your favorites uh, with our listeners? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I want to make sure everybody's aware because I think most people hear about the world famous San Diego Zoo, which is over 100 years old. Mm-hmm. And that is one destination where you can yes. visit and learn about the incredible work that we do. But that's down in downtown San Diego. But if you go 45 minutes north, you will come to the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. So we are two separate locations. The Safari Park, we just celebrated our 50th anniversary in May. Um, You know, back then it was built as the zoo of the future. And Mm -hmm. this revolutionary approach forever changed what zoos could look like. So if you come to the Safari Park in Hazel, you've been so you can attest the habitats, the open spaces, uh, oh, the massive. animals, and, and yes, and the, the multi-species habitats that we have is, is just incredible. And we recently had some folks from Reteti Elephant Sanctuary from Kenya, and they were at one of my favorite places in the park called the Watering Hole. It overlooks the East Africa uh, Vista. And they were sitting there looking out and they turned to us and they said, we feel like we're home. Oh, wow. And, I literally got tears in my eyes because it was such a huge honor that they felt that we are creating something very similar to Africa. And unfortunately, most people are not fortunate enough to go to Africa. Well, you can come to the safari park and you can get a feeling of what it's like Mm. uh, to, to be in these incredible spaces. So we I think I mentioned before, we have about 300 different species, but 3,600 animals. We have 102 million plants. I think, you know, I really want to share more about plants. If we don't have plants in our world, we're not going to survive. Animals (laughs) are not going to survive. And we have conservation work, conservation efforts uh, for the many different plants as well. Um, But as I mentioned before, these habitats, we have 300 acre habitats with large roaming herds of wildlife interacting like they would in their native habitats. So it's, you know, you come, each time you come, what you see will be a little bit different, uh, but it's, it's absolutely an incredible place. And I feel very fortunate to, to call it my workplace. What's your favorite cross species exhibit? I, I love, they're so enriching. I think more facilities should use cross species, but what's, what's your favorite? Oh boy, my favorite. 
I, I think all of the field habitats are my favorite. I can't just pick one because <laughs> each field habitat you go to, you know, whether it's East Africa, South Africa, or Central Asia, um, you're seeing a replicate of what it is in, in the wild. Uh, but I would say if, I, if you're forcing me to pick a favorite, I really love to see the giraffe, the Cape Buffalo, uh, the Southern white rhino all interacting in the same space. Um, we have two giraffe calves uh, out in East Africa right now. So it's really interesting to watch them and how they interact with the smaller hoof stock. It's just, it's, it's, it's really incredible. Are there so, any challenges in, in managing them? Oh, absolutely. Um, we, the, the team uh, works diligently to really observe behavior of the herds. And, you know, sometimes we have certain animals that, you know, are, are, taking space of other animals or moving in or looking at an African crown crane. And so we have to figure out different ways in which to create little creep areas or other areas where, you know, the smaller animals can go into. Mm -hmm. If they choose not to interact with the other species, I would say also feeding and developing feeding strategies. We do, you know, have a mixture of browsers and grazers. Um, so it's really important to observe how the animals are eating how they're moving around their habitats. Are there areas where, you know, you, you see the rhinos, but you don't see them in other areas? Is, is there a reason for that? Are they just, the rhinos, they can go where they, they want to. Yeah. Um, so in general, not, not too many issues because I think the team does such an incredible job of observing and, and being proactive about feeding strategies and, and movement around the habitat. Hmm. And you mentioned you had a group over from Kenya. What was it they were involved in with the elephants? Well, we have a great partnership with Riteti Elephant Sanctuary. And so we have for years been sending representatives there to work hand in hand. Um, as you probably know, or your listeners know, they do an incredible job of rehabilitating younger elephants and having them go back out into the wild to succeed. And so we've worked with them on anything from, um, you know, elephant nutrition to one of the more recent studies that we're working on is EEHV, which is a long word. It's basically elephant herpes um, that is absolutely devastating to both elephants in zoos and also in the wild. And so uh, we are actively working on different tests that here in the US, you would need a lot of equipment to be able to detect um, but in Africa, in certain areas, they may not have the electricity or the machinery. So developing techniques so that they can monitor their herds as well, mm -hmm. and then hopefully be, be able to treat just as many zoos um, in the U.S. and Europe have, have successfully uh, treated such a debilitating um, and threatening disease. So um, we've been working with them, and uh, they're great partners. We recently went out and they had asked, uh, what, you know, what, what do you need? And they said, we need a medic. I thought, well, that's very strange. Why do you need a medic? And they said, you know, sometimes the elephants will, will run into us because they're coming in to get that milk. <laughs> and so again, you know, these are wild animals, but it's, it's very applicable to use operant conditioning in that, of course, they're simply running to get their food source. And so uh, the team went out and created some barriers so that the elephants can learn. Like you can come in, but you can only come to this, you know, this far away from me. And then I will give you the, the bottle. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was really just 
basic training and, you know, helping them to, to build an, an area where you essentially have kind of a protected contact area, even though they're in with elephants a lot, um, they're all younger calves, yeah. um, just realizing that they're running into you and then you're giving them the bottle. So you're essentially reinforcing them and not teaching them that I'm a frail human being and you're a very large animal. Therefore, I need you to stay back and mm -hmm. I'll bring the bottle to you. Um, so it's been a great uh, partnership with them and we've learned a lot from them and hopefully uh, we've been a great partner to them as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it's all about, really, you know, working in in these types of facilities and with these types of animals, you know, you really do want to make a difference because we all know where the future is is headed in the wild. And, you know, we're already there with so many, so many species. Um, it's never been more important to collaborate with zoos to get, you know, all of that information that we can now use to potentially and hopefully help. Well, you know, you're right. And you said we're, we're there with some species. One of them is the northern white rhino. There's only two left in the world. And those two are, are protected 24 hours a day mm -hmm. uh, because they are the, the only two northern white rhinos left. And so you know, another project that I'm incredibly proud of is the Northern White Wino project that we have at the, at the Safari Park. And, um, you know, within our frozen zoo, we have a biodiversity bank that con contains genetic material from 12 Northern White Rhinos. So through innovative stem cell technology, in vitro fertilization, and a surrogacy project, it really offers hope for future genetic recovery of the northern white rhino. So, you know, for for those who think, how on earth is this going to happen? How 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 is this possible? Well, I think we have such an incredible model from the California condor. You know, we went from 22, yes. 22 individuals uh, at the safari park, and now there's around five hundred. Um, condors and I believe three of them are actually from the condor project so um, you know for people who think it's impossible it is possible and we have you know like I said a great model from our California condor success basically Jurassic Park with the frozen zoo <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> but more realistic <laughs> yes absolutely what do you think is the future of zoos you know, we've spoken a little bit, you know, obviously your involvement in the project um, in Abu Dhabi, you know, creating the very best in enclosure design and thinking about animal welfare, you know, getting our standards to the very highest level. But going further than that, what role do you think zoos are going to play in the coming years? You know, Hazel, I think zoos are going to continue the role that they have played for over a century. And that is bringing people closer, having people connect with animals so that they learn about an entire ecosystem. And you might think, well, I live, you know, wherever you live, how am I affecting elephants or how am I affecting this animal? Well, understanding different products that we purchase and uh, different ways that we engage in the places that we live having a direct effect on the, the species, on the plants, the animals that, that are around us. So I feel very strongly that zoos are going to continue for the very purpose of 
if you look back and you see like how many things can you look at in our world that wow that's really changed a lot in over a hundred years I would say more so you look back 10 20 years and say oh wow technology that's really advanced mm -hmm. but when you look back over a hundred years and you see the advancement and the ability to save a species the ability to connect people, to bring people to an area of the world that they would never be able to travel to. Um, having children come into a zoo and sparking that passion, I think that's one of the reasons why they, why well, I know it's one of the reasons why they wanted to build the SeaWorld at Abu Dhabi. It was, there were so many kids that were interested in the environment, they were interested in animals, but they really didn't have a place that really created that inspiration, that drive, that how do I develop and how do I build on this passion other than I know I want to work with animals, but I don't have a place I can go to really learn and to really grow my interests. Mm. So I, I think that they're, I think that they're going to be around because they serve such a huge, I mean, what other industry, what other organization is helping to save animals? Yeah. No one it's zoos, it's aquariums, it's, you know, local groups in, uh, you know, these grassroots approaches to conservation. I think that both is needed. You know, you need the support of zoos and aquariums. And then you obviously, you know, need places like Kenya who, you know, are actively working to, to save the elephant. I think that, that you need both to be successful. This is a huge, huge problem. And if we're all not working together, and bringing our expertise and our passions together, I don't think we're gonna resolve uh, the issues that we're facing in years to come. I think everything that you just said is such a wonderful parting message to leave everyone on. It's so, I like just what you said, this is what zoos have been doing for years. And now we have the resources to be able to tell the world about it. You know, we're, we're able to make connections easier with social media, traditional media, you know, travel is, you know, well, apart from the last few years, potentially <laughs> overall, it's easier for people to be able to make connections with these animals. And, you know, it's just, I'm very excited to see where the future goes for the zoo industry. Oh, I am too, you know, it's, and I, I think what's also very, what's also just incredible is that, you know, through AZA, we're able to link up and partner with other zoos mm. and just seeing the incredible work that everybody's doing. And it's such a collaborative effort to save animals. Um, it's, it's just such a great, it's a great organization and a great way for us to help resolve some of these major issues that are occurring in the wild. Yeah. Well, Christy, it has been an absolute pleasure once again to sit down and chat with you. So thank you so very much for coming back onto the pods. You are so welcome. Always a pleasure to talk with you <laughs> and uh, call me anytime if you want to talk killer wells. <laughs> oh, of course. Don't tempt me. You'll never get me off the phone. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, then please do not forget to like, rate, and subscribe. I will catch you all next week.